So in, in our passage this morning, uh, we have a set of pairs. We have, uh, we have two men, uh, we have two prayers, and two results. And so this passage is about the dangers of self-righteousness and also about the destination of those who would humble themselves. And so this morning, I, I want us to, we're going to examine a definition of, of self-righteousness. We're going to look at the dangers of self-righteousness. And then finally, we're going to look at a cure for self-righteousness. And so as we look at um, our text this morning, we see Jesus giving a, a compare and contrast of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And so our first uh, point, as we look at a definition of self-righteousness, we see that Jesus frames the self-righteousness of the Pharisee in two ways. He frames it by position, and he frames it by performance. Notice first that he frames it by position. The Pharisee stands off to himself. The text says he stands, says he stands by himself. The reason he does this is because self-righteousness is about making distinctions. This Pharisee stands by himself because he wants, to make, he wants to make a distinction between himself and others. He wants to isolate himself. He wants everyone to know, God included, that he is not like other people. This Pharisee stands by himself because in his mind, there is none like himself. Self-righteousness in the end leads to isolation. Self-righteousness leads to isolation because the more, the more self-righteousness grows in your hearts, you have less and less in common with those around you. Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself, seeks his own desire, he breaks out against all sound judgment. And this Pharisee standing to himself is a reminder to us that our action follows those things that are in our hearts. Self-righteousness is not something that just can be contained in your mind. It will eventually show up in your actions and in your words. And so Jesus showing us the, he shows the position of the Pharisee. He goes on next to show us the performance of self-righteousness. And this Pharisee, he justifies his position. He justifies his standing by his performance. He prays this prayer of self righteousness, self-performance. This prayer is really about himself. He might mention God, but it's all a bunch of I's and me's and what I do and what I don't do. And in this way, we see that self-righteousness is about what you don't do. He goes on and on. He has a list of people that he's better than um, because he doesn't behave as they do. And what I find convicting this morning is that that's what we do as well. I can remember being in a restaurant. I'm sure all of you have had this experience. A few tables over, you have a group of children, and they're just running around the table. They're screaming, they're crying, they're making noise. Like, it's, it's getting awkwardly uncomfortable for those in the restaurant. And I had the thought, man, I'm glad my kids don't run around like that. And that's, that's self-righteousness. That's what self-righteousness is, is evaluating other people based on their behavior and saying, I'm better than them because I don't do that. My kids are better because they don't behave like that. Whether someone drinks alcohol or not, whether the type of music or the concerts we go to, we find ways to distinguish ourselves from others and create our own righteousness. And we do that with small, trivial things. And so when it comes to the things of God, of course, we're going to rank 
and, and put ourselves in position against other people based on what we do and what they do. Self-righteousness creates these old quotes. Some of you might remember that, that will go something like this. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. I knew, I knew you would like that one. You, you, you probably said that one. <laughs> Self-righteousness starts with these small things, and it keeps growing and growing and growing till you, till you find yourself making distinctions everywhere you go. You're always sizing people up, evaluating, am I, am I better than them? Do I have a better standing with God because I'm better than this person? We find this in, in, in the ways inside the church with homeschooling. My kids are homeschooled. They're better than your kids who go to that public school. How would you subject your kids to be taught by the public system? And then you have others that say, my kids are in public school. We believe the mission of God is to send our Christian kids and to be a light in the public school system. And we inside the church, we've, and again, we wouldn't say these things to each other, but in our hearts and our minds, we evaluate each other based on what we do and what they do. Even, even in the church, we find pastors and preachers and churches that, that find ways to have self-righteousness. There used to be, and may, maybe still is, a, a, a concern over whether churches preach verse by verse. I mean, part of me even coming to EPC was because we preach verse by verse. None of that topical stuff here. That's, that's self-righteousness. You can teach a topical sermon and be just as faithful as anybody else. But we, again, we find ways to evaluate ourselves according to other people. And hear this, this Pharisee, it's not as if this Pharisee wouldn't have considered himself a sinner. Self-righteousness leaves room to be a sinner. It's just that I'm not like that sinner. Like, I, I, I'm not doing adultery. I might struggle with lust, but I'm not out here cheating on my wife, sleeping with people. So self-righteousness will position yourself as a sinner, but just not those sinners. And we see this in the, in the so-called prayer that this Pharisee is, is, is offering to God. So notice, too, that self-righteousness must, it always has to compare itself with people. The Pharisee and no one else in their right mind would dare make the accusation that they are more righteous than God. We would never do that. That doesn't make sense. The point of, the point of there being a God means that he's more righteous than you. And so in self-righteousness, naturally, we have to find people. We look around and find people to step on to exalt ourselves. The fact of the matter is there's only two forms of righteousness, really only one. The righteousness you think you have and the righteousness of God. Self-righteousness ignores God's holiness and seeks to establish its own righteousness. In this way, self-righteousness is, is insidious, it's crafty, and slowly it erodes everything around you. And for us, it, it, this, it presents a danger. There's a very inherent danger in self-righteousness, the, the danger of believing you are justified in yourself. This is what Jesus is seeking to expose in this parable. And so now I want to turn our attention to, to some of the dangers of self-righteousness. So if, if you read this parable and you get the sense that this is just unrealistic, like could there be somebody this, un, like, this lost, this blind, this self-righteous, that they would actually walk in a temple and start a prayer off with saying God, and everything after that is I, 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 me, 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 I am so great. If you feel like 
This is, this is like too good to be true. You're getting close to what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is telling this parable as an exaggerated prayer to really show us the ugliness of self-righteousness. Because the fact of the matter is, we, like the Pharisee, wouldn't pray that prayer. We would never say these things that happen inside our brains. But that, that silence, it grows and it grows and it feasts on us until everything, your motivation for life is based around how can I add to my stat? How can I create a resume that will look good for God? We do that in church. We do it in work. We do it in all facets of life. And this is part of the danger of self-righteousness. This parable uh, exposes the reality of this sin that is in our hearts. And so there, there's two uh, dangers I want to look at in, in self-righteousness. The first is the danger of self-deception, and the second, the destruction of public witness. Looking at self-deception, we see uh, when you are trusting yourself for your own righteousness, it actually shrinks the power of the cross. Again, it it might leave a little room for you to be a sinner and you need Jesus, but you really just need Jesus to get started. Like, I was a sinner. I need the cross. There were some things I couldn't work out, but now that I got Jesus, Jesus, I got it from here. I'm going to work out my own resume, and and you're going to look back and be like, man, that guy was really good. Like, I just gave him a boost in in the Christian life, and he took it from there. Salvation becomes this thing. It becomes this decision that you made years ago, not a daily submission and repentance and faith. That's the danger of, of, of self-righteousness. Isaiah, Isaiah 5 and verse 21 gives a, a woe to us. It says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And perhaps... There may be no better way to say this than to look at Proverbs, verse 30, chap, Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 12. It says, There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. Yeah, you can just, we can sit there and just let that marinate. That is the picture of self-righteousness, walking around thinking that you're clean, And all the while, you're covered in filth. And God sees that. You might think you're fooling other people, but God sees that. And so we see in in self-righteousness that it it leads to self-deception. Jesus said in verse 14 that not, not both of these men went home justified, but only the tax collector. This means that the Pharisee was not saved. Let that sink in. He went home not justified. The Pharisee went home as terrible as a sinner as he thought that tax collector to be. When we read 1 John 1.8, it says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The Pharisee, by making his prayer all about his righteousness, is essentially saying to God, I have no sin. I have nothing to repent of. Again, in 1 John, 1, chapter, uh, 1 John 1, verse 10, we see that self-righteousness calls God a liar. Jesus. It says, if we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. These are the dangers of, of self-righteousness, that you would actually call God a liar. 
and you would say that you have no sin. And notice it says that we deceive ourselves. We're not deceiving God. And quite honestly, you're probably not deceiving any of the people around you. You're blinding yourself to the truth that you actually need a Savior when you have self-righteousness in your hearts. And because we have a lot of people today self-deceived, working out their own self-righteousness, this, this topic, this issue of self-righteousness is the, is the main attribute that the world attaches to Christianity. And because of this, we see the destruction of our public witness. The world, and particularly non-Christians in, in the United States, have come to anticipate scorn, hatred, and condescension from Christians. And unfortunately, too many times, we don't disappoint. In our self-righteous positions that, that make distinctions between us and their sin, we treat them like filth. This is what we see in this, in this prayer that the Pharisee gives in this parable. He derides his neighbor while he's in the temple. Think about this. Consider this. The last person this, this tax collector would have wanted to hear from was the Pharisee. This was the person that knew the law. This was the guy that was supposed to know God the most. And for that tax collector, he was only there because he knew God was there. He was not looking for any help from that Pharisee. Because that's what they did. They, they derided and they, and they uh, treated others with contempt. They stepped on them to make themselves look better. This is what we do in the world. This is how we treat those who are non-Christians. We see, our, we see their sin is greater than ours, and we treat them with contempt. Isaiah 65 and verse 5 shows us how, we've how we condition the world to think of us. This is what the world thinks of how we view them and how we approach them. Keep to yourself. Do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. In being deceived, we can't see that the sin that we loathe in others was nailed to the same cross as our sins. Romans 3, verses 10 through 18, reminds us of the sin that we all have. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongue, their tongues to, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. They, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And in the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And all means all, and none means none. The truth of the matter is, is, is that if God doesn't call us to himself, we will be just as lost as the people that we look down on. The truth of this parable is that there are two men. They walked into the same temple through the same doors, signifying that they were in the same sinking ship. Without the grace and mercy of God, we're sinking in the same ship of those people we look down upon. And to be, again, to be self-righteous is to, is to deceive yourself. But Jesus, again, he's telling this parable to give us hope. He's waking us up to the cure of self-righteousness. There is hope. There is a way to break free from the bondage of self-righteousness. And that cure is found in the second half of this parable. 
And so now we turn our attention to the tax collector and the cure for self-righteousness. So just a bit of context for, for tax collectors and why they were hated and, and, and looked upon as, as the worst people on earth. They, uh, they were hated for their greed and their unjust treatment to the Jews. And oftentimes, the tax collectors were Jews themselves, so they were viewed upon uh, specifically with the Pharisees as being a sellout. Not only are you helping our Roman emperors inflict uh, unjust treatment and oppression upon us, you're doing this to your own people. Like, how bad is that? Not only are you making money from unjust gains, but you're doing this to your own people in the process. And so for that Pharisee, to be in, to be in the temple with a tax collector for him was like the worst thing. He would have rather just drove him out. Like, you don't even deserve to be in here. But we find the tax collector coming in. And so when we get to this, this tax collector, Jesus, as he does with the Pharisee, he draws attention again to the position. This word standing, make note of what Jesus is saying and, and making a comparison of where they're standing. The, Pharisee, the, the tax collector stands far off. This tax collector, he stands far off because of his focus. His focus is not on himself and not how he can justify himself. His focus is on God. This tax collector stands far off because he knows himself to be a sinner and he knows God to be holy. The position of this, of this tax collector is an interesting contrast to that of the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood by himself because he believed no one was like himself. The tax collector stood far off because he knew there was no one like the Lord. The Pharisee was standing on his merits. The tax collector was standing on mercy. This tax, this tax collector was standing, uh, the fact that he's standing afar off, it just immediately draws my mind back to, to Israel in Exodus 20. If you know the story, Moses has gathered Israel to Mount Sinai, and they see thunder and, and see lightning and flashing, and they get to hear God speak, which we would think would be a great thing. But at the end of that, they tell Moses, look, we're going to stand far back. You talk to him. We don't want to ever hear that again. That was terrifying. We were fearful that we might die. And so they stand afar off because they recognize that they have sin and that God is holy. And then you see in that passage where Moses... He draws near to God as a mediator for them, and the people stand off. That's going to be important. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But standing far off, that's the, that's the proper response and understanding of our position with God. He is holy, which means we can't just approach him in any kind of way. To understand that God is holy would mean you approach him trembling, almost daring not to approach him because of his holiness. And so we find that this, the position of the tax collector and his, and his posture toward the Lord is consistent with Scripture. And so we see as Jesus continues to, to unpack this parable, he tells the story and includes the contrast of how the Pharisee and the tax collector are standing. But in showing the cure for self-righteousness, he shows the contrast of the Pharisee's performance and the tax collector's pardon. This tax collector, he doesn't bring a list. He's not looking around to see who he's better than. He's just coming for pardon. He's coming for pardon. He's begging and pleading for mercy. 
the text says in Luke uh, 18 and 13, that he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying that God, God be merciful to me, a sinner. So notice uh, in our text, it, said, it is said that the Pharisee prayed, but you don't see prayer mentioned with the tax collector. But it's quite obvious in the text who actually prayed. It was the tax collector. This tax collector, he actually followed the pattern of the Lord's prayer that we recite each week. Matthew 6, 12, where we see the, the Lord's prayer, it says, and forgive us our debts as we, for, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Central to prayer, central to the Christian life is the fact that I have sins. I have debts that need to be paid. Not anyone else, although all have sinned, but I need to approach God for my sin first and foremost. And so the, we find that the tax collector, essentially what he's saying is, it's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not the preacher, not the deacon, not the Pharisee, not anybody else. It's me standing in the need of prayer. We find that this tax collector, he's standing. He's standing, standing on the promises of God. And what is that promise? 1 John 1, 9, it gives us this sure promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the promise that this Pharisee, that, that this tax collector was standing on. He might have been standing afar off, but he had enough sense to know he was standing on holy ground. Jesus, in, in commenting on this tax collector, said that he went home that day justified. What a remarkable statement, that he would go home justified. Think about this. If you want answer, like a guaranteed answer to prayer, a lot of times we talk about prayer, whether or not the Lord answers our prayer. 1 John 1, 9, guaranteed answer to prayer. You come to Jesus with sins and pleading for mercy, he answers that prayer every time. That's guaranteed prayer. Put that in your back pocket. I know how to get an answer from the Lord. I come to him with my sin. He responds every single time. This man went home justified because God answered his plea for mercy. I want us to be clear this morning. He didn't, he didn't go home justified just because he prayed the right prayer. He went home justified because God answered his prayer, but also because God paid for this mercy. Mercy, the, the type of mercy that he was asking for had to come from a paid ransom. Jesus, Jesus is telling this parable. He's the one telling this parable of this man going home justified because he's the one that knows he's going to pay the debt. Again, I know this is a parable, so he's telling it like a parable. But again, this is so vivid for us. Like this man walked and went home justified because Jesus was going to be the one to extend that mercy. And so we see that mercy was free to this man, but it's not free overall. Jesus asks us, he commands us to pray for the forgiveness of our sins and we see in Romans uh, 6, 23, where it tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This verse and many others we could look at would, te would testify to the fact 
that all sin requires payment. There's no sin that's just getting wiped, you know, swept under the rug and we're not going to address it. All sin requires a payment. And so when this tax collector is pleading for mercy, what he's actually asking God to do is to pay for my sin. You take my sin and pay for him and allow me to go scot-free by your grace. That's, that's what he's praying for. And this is what Jesus delivers in his life and in his blood. Listen, listen to how Jesus identifies with this man, with the, with the tax collector. First, Jesus, you see him restoring his humanity. The Pharisee, in his so-called prayer, referred to him as a tax, tax collector. He wouldn't even identify with him as a man. This tax collector, this person that does this, I'm identifying him with what he does. Jesus, when speaking about the tax collector, doesn't call him that. He says, this man. Jesus reminding us as he tells his parable that not one but two men went into this temple and one of these men went home justified. And it's not the one that you think. It's the one that pleaded for mercy. This man, this man, this man that you call a tax collector, this man, the one that you constantly remind of his sins, this man went home justified. He went home justified because Jesus was cut off and was made to be afar off for our sake. Yes. Yes. For our sake, this is 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's what some call the great exchange. Jesus is putting himself in the position of this tax collector to be far off, to be cut off from God, to be, to be cursed and on a tree, to be beaten and scorned and to die for our sins. He put himself in the place of that tax collector so that the tax collector would be brought near, so that the tax collector would experience the forgiveness and grace, that he would go home justified. So just like there's a, there's a reversal in righteousness Jesus, in Jesus' words here, we see a reversal uh, in the position. Jesus identifies and draws near to the one who was far off. Again, I, it's amazing just, just to see how Jesus is referring to this tax collector to say, basically, this is the one that I'm standing next to. Like this one that you thought was afar off, this one that you cast it out, that's the one I'm actually with. And I'm walking with him. And my, sin, my death on the cross has covered him sins, his sins. It's interesting, when, when you look at it, when you look at it in, in the Greek, the Pharisee now becomes the one that is far off. Again, I, I don't want to get too far into it, but looking at it in the original language, it was just exciting for me to look at this. So I'm going I'm to I'm nerd out a little bit on you real quick. There, there, there are two words in the Greek that talk about being near and far. And so when a Pharisee talks about this, this tax collector, he uses a near word to say, this guy that is near to me is, is filthy, like he's, he's worse off. Jesus picks up that same word and says, this one that you thought was far off, I'm actually near to him. This is the one I'm near to. And then the word he uses in the Greek text for the Pharisee, he says he is the one that is afar off. And he says that. We get the, we get the sense of it in the English that this man went home justified 
rather than the other. But again, just to look at it in, in the original language to see that Jesus says, you thought you were near, but you couldn't be any further away from me. This is what Jesus does in his, his death and resurrection on the cross. He brings us near. And so Jesus, like Moses, he not only draws near to God for us, but because he's God himself, he's able to actually bring us near. There's probably, again, no, no better verse to, to highlight what this is in our lives than Ephesians 2.13. It says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the testimony of those who would plead for mercy. You were far off, and you knew that, and you recognized that, and you called on Jesus, and by his blood, he brought you near to him. Praise God. Praise God for his saving mercies, that he would bring us near to him, no matter where you are, no matter where you stand. Because of Christ, you can be brought near. And so the question for us this morning is, where do you stand with God? Are you deceived by your sin to think that you're on solid ground, but really you're on sinking sand? Do you feel far from God? Do you feel distant from him? Are you aware of your, of your sin and that your sin creates an infinite separation between you and him? Is that how you feel this morning? Well, if that's the case, stay there. You're right where you need to be. In fact, stand there. Stand on the promises of God. Stand needing prayer this morning. Stay there. Plead uh, for mercy on behalf of Christ. You might feel like this tax collector that you, you might need to beat your chest. You might need to, to rip the shirt off in, in your agony against your sin. But be thankful to God that not only was Christ beaten, but by his stripes this morning, you are healed. Plead with God for mercy this morning, and you can go home today justified. You can get in your car and actually go home today justified. Justified, glorified, because Jesus has paid your ransom. You've been made free by his blood. Because of Calvary, you've been made free. So again, I implore us to, to plead for mercy on behalf of Christ. Stand on God's mercy. Stand on Christ, the solid rock. The song says, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen. Let's pray.